Hello and welcome to the Unsweetened Literary Journal 2021 podcast, episode 4. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal and Bedigal people of the Eora Nation and the Nunawal people, the traditional custodians of the lands of UNSW. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everyone, this is Axel. I am joined by... Mia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mia. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for today's podcast. It's only a few days into lockdown, but I'm already at the point where I'm just scared of not talking to people and just really wanting to chat. Um, uh, I know. I feel like I've been going back to all the, um, all my little comfort books and stuff immediately. It's only been a few days, but I'm like, time to reread those books multiple times. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's weird because I, as a very introverted person, I, I'm not super fussed about going without talking to people for a few days. Um, but whenever it's locked down, it's just like, I must cling. It's like, the, it's like, cause they've just severed the possibility that you might interact with someone, even though you know you're probably not gonna. It's like, well, now I can't, even if I wanted to. Yeah. Instead, I'm gonna read all of my favorite children's books and guiltily rewatch Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Cool. So apart from rereading, yeah, children's books, um, what, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I actually have two things I've been reading. So one of them was a wonderful little court case that I'm came across. You might think, well, Mia, why, what's, what's this got to do with Unsweeted? Well, I just found it fascinating that, um, this was in the Michigan Court of Appeals. Um, and this court's judgment was entirely written in verse. Um, the judge thought that the case was so ridiculous. It was about um, a motorcyclist crashing into a tree. I think he tried to sue the tree. Um, let me just read out. This is the entire judgment, by the way. We thought that we would never see a suit to compensate a tree, a suit whose claim in tort is pressed upon a mangled tree's behest, a tree whose battered trunk was pressed against a Chevy's crumpled crest, a tree that faces each new day with bark and limb in disarray, a tree that may forever bear a lasting need for tender care. Flora lovers, though we three, we must uphold the court's decree. Like, incredible. And they say, literature makes the world go around, including in this court case. I just think that's just hilarious and brilliant. That, that court, um, that judge really has quite the eye for a nice little, uh, nice little rhyme there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I guess once you get to a certain level of power in the legal system, for good or for evil, you can do what you want. And this fellow has just gone for good chaos. Yeah. I love that. There's something so much, he could have just said, this is ridiculous, but this is so much more powerful than saying it's ridiculous. It's like, oh, it's so ridiculous, I have to, I have to sing it to you. But, um, yeah, so that was hilarious that I just came across that recently. But, um, in terms of actual literature, I've been <laughs> reading, um, I've started reading David Maloof's Antipodes, which is a collection of his short stories. I think they were written from like a variety of types, but um, I've been really loving that. I think like Maloof, I mean, he's, you know, he's one of the great Australian writers. Um, and it's just, he has that quality, especially I love the way he kind of deals with symbols and objects and things. He just has that like brilliant way of just infusing them with like so much 
meaning and like importance and stuff like that. And it's it's very kind of I guess modernist. And I don't know why it surprised me to find out that he's ninety. He's like really old, so it makes sense that like that's kind of the style he's writing in. But I uh, have you read have you read much um Malouf? I have not, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. I, like a very familiar name, but yeah. I don't think I've read anything of his. Yeah, I mean he's like like known for his like coming of age stories. Like he is like the king of coming of age stories. You know, and some of the short stories in here do um deal with that. I always think coming of age is such an interesting format because it's like it's actually kind of you can only appreciate it like retrospectively, right? Because it's got that teleological impetus to it, right? Even though life doesn't actually look like that. So even though like coming of age is supposed to be this very forward moving kind of achieving this outcome self-identification kind of um, form, it actually, you can kind of only appreciate it sort of looking backwards when you think about it and trying to put meanings. I just, very, I just, interesting form, you know, and especially probably most of our listeners right now are quite young. The coming of age story, it doesn't, just when you become like an adult, doesn't leave you. Like it, I feel like it's just, it's quite a, quite an effective form. What, a, what were your um core coming of age texts? I used to oh I was obsessed. I've kind of moved on from it now. When I just I love um high school dramas, but you know being on the uh sort of Australian um wavelength, um I loved Dance Academy. Oh my god, <laughs> that was so good. And I actually recently just finished watching Beauty Blues. Um, so I think maybe maybe I'm just in that kind of mood, but I just find that those are just like. Good reminders of, like, reminders of to be in the presentness. I think we can be so caught up in sort of very, like, Americanized kind of, um, coming of age stories, but those ones are just, just, yeah, really stuck with I love, I love the good high school coming of age story. Uh, those, those really, I was just obsessed with those in our exams. I think we all like to see our lives explained a little bit better, even if it's not really our lives, but you know. Yeah. 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 All of my core coming of age texts were fantasy books, and so yeah. um, it's like some part of me wants to be able to go, yeah, I was a good Australian reader, <laughs> and I found lots of texts that resonated with me. And instead, it's just like, no, there are dragons. Um, uh, I don't know. What was your favorite one? Uh, the Song of the Lioness by Tamara Pierce. Um, it's a, a series of four books um, following a young girl who disguises herself uh, as a boy to become a knight. Um, Her name is Alana, and she is just a chaotic, cranky little redhead. And for any listeners who don't know what I look like, I too am a cranky, short redhead. That was basically my core goals in a protagonist (laughs) as a young reader. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it didn't it didn't matter um if they were anything like me apart from that. If they were short, angry redhead, it was all good. <laughs> yeah, we we do love finding ourselves in those types of stories, don't we? Like, you know, I always love the like, like I don't want to say the protagonist that's like not like other girls, but when you're younger you just want to be unique and you just want to think like you want to have those protagonists that just, oh, they read, they're so, they're so unique. And like, <laughs> maybe that's not that unique, but like, you know, when you're younger, you just want to think that like you're special for the things you do. I think if that's why fantasy, like fantasy coming of age stories are so important because they just, they, they, they take you out of your world and they put you in another world. And it's just that, you know, escapism, but there's still that central aspect of they're still learning how to be themselves. Very, like you can see why they just, it's so successful. 
Yeah, entirely. It's it's taking the want to be unique to such an extreme because it means you can sort of be in a very unique world, but also construct some of that world um, for yourself. I think. Uh, so yeah, I don't have any coming of age nostalgia text where it's like, ah oh, yes, this reminds me of high school. Instead, I've just got. Yeah, I absolutely did not save the world or battle any demons, um, but I sure did embarrass myself with terrible crushes as a 12-year-old. Um, so, coming-of-age text, would yes. recommend. Yes, definitely. What have you been reading, Axel? So, I'm sort of reading a coming-of-age text. Not not exactly. It's um, slightly too literary to be a coming-of-age text, but it's it's called The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., and it's set in the deep south on a um, cotton plantation amongst a community of slaves. And uh, the two protagonists are two uh, teenage boys who are lovers. And the narrative is sort of structured around the whole community's response to their relationship and how religion sort of becomes very interweaved with the community politics. So it's divinely, divinely written. Like, the language is just so poetic and so rich. Um, but the casualness of the violence in, in particular mm. and um, the, the the real explicitness that Jones Jr. goes into in, in terms of the treatment of slaves is uh, quite, quite horrifying. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those books that's, sort of painful on every page to read um and, yeah. and sim- simultaneously just so absorbing yeah because that's always such a massive um question in writing is like when it comes to depicting kind of cultural trauma and stuff like that like what's the right way to do it because you want to be exposing your readers to like the reality of it but also like it can be so confronting so it's always yeah it, it's definitely it's definitely good to be confronted i think at times but it can be when when was this book written Last year, I believe. Oh, okay. So it's quite a, quite a recent one, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the the author is quite young, I, I think, going off his author photo. And just from um, the first few pages, I was thinking, this is a master of, of language. How have I not heard of this person before? But he seems so, so young. Um, and the book is so clearly really thoroughly researched. It's just like stepping into the story world. Um, uh, I haven't looked into his writing process yet, but I'm I'm excited to do so. Um, I'm about halfway through, and it's sort of like with each character, um, uh, each character gets their own chapters. There are there are quite a few POV characters, and um, okay, so they're like um, as a way dying kind of yeah, that kind of vibe. yeah. Yeah, it's it's really getting a snapshot from every corner of the community, um, and it's a fascinating way of experiencing the story because it's sort of jolty at first going between so many different minds because they have such different viewpoints and their their voices are so different. But the story, the core thread of the narrative is carried through sort of seamlessly, Um each section almost reads like it could be its own short story and um and yet 
it's it's sort of I realize at the end of each chapter, oh, the plot has progressed. I thought I was just getting to know this character, but no, things have happened, um, which is a strange experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I sort of wish that I'd read this text in a study context and had some mm-hmm. um, wonderful literary studies teacher tell me how this is happening. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, I'm going to have to muddle through myself. <laughs> yes, no, no, you've yes. got to do the decipher yourself. But that does sound really. Really awesome. Yeah. I unfortunately don't have anything nearly as fun as that court case to, to yeah. offer up. Um, I think the extent of my fun reading has been that I, I research Tumblr. And <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of memes. And, and what um, you for research purposes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which is a really weird statement. It's <laughs> Just the idea of memes as research is very strange, but, um, you know, it's fun. Would recommend, uh, interesting insight into views of youth culture or something. Definitely. And, you know, lots of cats. Yeah, Cause um, I feel like kids on, or youth on social media just have no, um, like gray area. Like they'll just literally tell you exactly how they feel. So like forget trying to analyze youth culture and go straight to the memes. That's what the kids are thinking these days. <laughs> I do like how we're saying um, youth culture as if we are not part, not of, part of it. <laughs> how old are you, Mia? I'm 19, so I'm definitely a part of uh, youth culture. But I'm yet. Oh, I've ma- I have made a few TikToks, but they were like craft TikToks. But I'm I'm yet to get on um, and start complaining. Watch this space. I might get on and start uh, start making some social commentary. Perhaps that could be my platform. <laughs> I'm excited. I uh, look forward to your future as um, a TikTok influencer. I'm just old enough now, I'm past 20, that I can sort of look at teenagers on Tumblr and go, oh my god, you poor things. Um, adolescence is awful. While still sort of We're being... We're Tumblr veterans. We, we lived through the like 2012, 2013 Tumblr. That was, that was a time. Yeah, that was a time. Yeah. It, yeah, just the worst um, scenes from so many coming of age books compressed into internet discourse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Well, moving on from some of the most embarrassing years of my life, let's pass over to fellow editor Wen, who, for our segment on literary history, has explored the novella. Hi, my name is Wen, and I'm an editor at Unseaten. And today we're looking at the novella as a genre. So what is the novella? So- Hi, my name is Wen and I'm an editor at Unseaten. And today we're looking at the novella as a genre. So what is the novella? Simply put, the novella can be viewed as the sibling to the short story and the novel, sharing similar features from both, and it sits between 17,000 words and 40,000 words. The novella is somewhat the neglected middle child when compared to its more popular counterparts. Still, there have been notable works to its name such as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, and Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, just to name a few. The novella has risen to popularity in the recent decade, 
especially in the speculative fiction market with the rise of ebooks and e-commerce, which we will delve into in a bit. But first, where did the novella begin? The novella as a genre began in Italy during the early Renaissance, with Giovanni Boccaccio, author of the Decameron, a collection of novellas telling tales of individuals fleeing the Black Death. The early novellas often came in the form of anecdotes, legends, and romantic tales, and tend to be grounded in local events. Giovanni Boccaccio, among writers such as Franco Sacchetti and Matteo Bandello, would later transform the novella into a form that tells stories that are psychologically subtle and highly structured, often using a common theme as a frame. Later on, Giovanni Chaucer introduced the novella to the English with Canterbury Tales. The realistic content and form of these tales will later influence the development of the English novel and the short story in the 19th century. Meanwhile, novellas thrived in Germany during the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. German novellas are often framed within a catastrophic event, fictional or otherwise. These stories are often self-contained and are characterized by their brevity and note of irony. Features of the German novella are still relevant to this day, characterized by its unity in mood and style rather than the traditional unity of action. So what are some features of the novella? The novella is often characterized as having a singular focus, minimal amount of characters, and a swift pace. I believe the novella shares a greater resemblance with the short story in this sense, and can often achieve richer complexities and characterizations due to its luxury in space compared to a short story, which also allows the novella to indulge more in descriptive writing. The formal principle of the novella is intensity of the novel extensity, Graham Good writes in Notes of the Novella. As with the short story, every sentence, every word almost, snowballs into a final revelation, unravels a ripening obsession, or piles towards a damning mistake. Alan Gagarnus writes, the novel is a forgiving form. Its loose clothes can hide your extra 10 to 20 pounds, but writing a novella means entering an Audrey Hepburn lookalike contest. There is no faking that caliber of leanness. Another feature of the novella is in its experimentation. An author might experiment with a unique approach to voice or structure without having to commit to the length of a novel meanwhile having the leisure to explore and stretch imaginatively further than a short story would allow, yet at the same time maintaining a distinct focus and quality. An example of experimentation in novellas can be seen by the example of Fever Dream by Argentinian author Samantha Sweblin who experiments with narrative structure and the ability to string readers along without clear logical threads, but instead honing in on the mood, the stress, and the panic often found in nightmares and fever dreams. It is strange and confusing, 
um, in that sense, where there is always the accumulating dread and the unknown impending doom. The feeling of not knowing where you're going and not knowing how you're going to stop it. Now that we've talked about the roots of the novella and its many qualities, how does the novella fit in our present lives? Well, as most novellas are intended to be read in one or two sittings, and with our limited attention spans and ever shortage of time, novellas have become increasingly appealing. For readers, novellas demand lower commitment, but yet still possess the complexity and depth to immerse the reader. A reader stepping out of their comfort zone and dipping their toes in a new genre might find novellas to be a great option and a great middle ground opportunity to discover new authors and different voices. In the past, novellas have been constrained to literary magazines and anthologies and are oftentimes marketed as short novels or long short stories. But they are garnering a market of their own since Tor introduced an imprint for novellas and short works and also since the rise of e-reading. Works like Murderbot and Binti have seen great success and following, and the speculative fiction's novella market continues to expand. On a final note, I'm very glad that novellas are now in increasing in popularity as I believe this market will create more opportunities for emerging authors from varying backgrounds and cultures. And this will hopefully encourage more diversity in the literary sphere, bringing more richness in our delights. Thank you for listening, and stay gold. Simply put, the novella can be viewed as the sibling to the short story and the novel, sharing similar features from both, and it sits between... 17,000 words and 40,000 words. The novella is somewhat the neglected middle child when compared to its more popular counterparts. Still, there have been notable works to its name such as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, and Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, just to name a few. The novella has risen to popularity in the recent decade, especially in the speculative fiction market with the rise of ebooks and e-commerce, which we will delve into in a bit. But first, where did the novella begin? The novella as a genre began in Italy during the early Renaissance, with Giovanni Boccaccio, author of the Decameron, a collection of novellas telling tales of individuals fleeing the Black Death. The early novellas often came in the form of anecdotes, legends, and romantic tales, and tend to be grounded in local events. Giovanni Boccaccio, among writers such as Franco Sacchetti and Matteo Bandello would later transform the novella into a form that tells stories that are psychologically subtle and highly structured, often using a common theme as a frame. Later on, Giovanni Chaucer introduced the novella to the English with Canterbury Tales. The realistic content and form of these tales will later influence the development of the English novel and the short story in the 19th century. Meanwhile, novellas thrived in Germany during the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. 
German novellas are often framed within a catastrophic event, fictional or otherwise. These stories are often self-contained and are characterized by their brevity and note of irony. Features of the German novella are still relevant to this day, characterized by its unity in mood and style rather than the traditional unity of action. So what are some features of the novella? The novella is often characterized as having a singular focus, minimal amount of characters, and a swift pace. I believe the novella shares a greater resemblance with the short story in this sense and can often achieve richer complexities and characterizations due to its luxury in space compared to a short story, which also allows the novella to indulge more in descriptive writing. The formal principle of the novella is intensity of the novel extensity, Graham Good writes in Notes of the Novella. As with the short story, every sentence, every word almost, snowballs into a final revelation, unravels a ripening obsession, or piles towards a damning mistake. Alan Gagarnus writes, The novel is a forgiving form. Its loose clothes can hide your extra 10 to 20 pounds, but writing a novella means entering an Audrey Hepburn lookalike contest. There is no faking that caliber of leanness. Another feature of the novella is in its experimentation. An author might experiment with a unique approach to voice or structure without having to commit to the length of a novel. Meanwhile, having the leisure to explore and stretch imaginatively further than a short story would allow, yet at the same time maintaining a distinct focus and quality. An example of experimentation in novellas can be seen by the example of Fever Dream by Argentinian author Samantha Sweblin who experiments with narrative structure and the ability to string readers along without clear logical threads, but instead honing in on the mood, the stress, and the panic often found in nightmares and fever dreams. It is strange and confusing um, in that sense, where there is always the accumulating dread and the unknown impending doom, the feeling of not knowing where you're going and not knowing how you're going to stop it. Now that we've talked about the roots of the novella and its many qualities, how does the novella fit in our present lives? Well, as most novellas are intended to be read in one or two sittings, and with our limited attention spans and ever shortage of time, novellas have become increasingly appealing. For readers, novellas demand lower commitment, but yet still possess the complexity and depth to immerse the reader. A reader stepping out of their comfort zone and dipping their toes in a new genre might find novellas to be a great option and a great middle ground opportunity to discover new authors and different voices. In the past, novellas have been constrained to literary magazines and anthologies and are oftentimes marketed as short novels or long short stories but they are garnering a market of their own since Tor introduced an imprint for novellas and short works and also since the rise of e-reading. Works like Murderbot and Binti have seen great success and following. 
and the speculative fiction's novella market continues to expand. On a final note, I'm very glad that novellas are now in increasing in popularity, as I believe this market will create more opportunities for emerging authors from varying backgrounds and cultures. And this will hopefully encourage more diversity in the literary sphere, bringing more richness in our delights. Thank you for listening, and stay gold. Thank you very much for that, Wen. Um, so to go on to a general update on the publication, things are coming along very nicely and suddenly very rapidly. It feels like it was January a couple of weeks ago, and it's the end of June. Um, yeah, the big thing that's coming up is that submissions are closing on the 5th of July at 11.59pm. Um, so we've been, we've been looking at the ones that have already been submitted. Um, and it's fantastic to see just how incredible everyone's submissions are. So we'd love to see heaps more. We'd love to see some more essays um, as well. Any essay writers out there, um, every year we're always looking for more of that. So we've got some fantastic writers so far, but we'd love to see anything that anyone wants to submit. Um, we'd love to have a look at you guys. Absolutely. And Unsweetened is here to be a student voice. And I've gotten a lot of emails with people being like, is is it okay that I submit X, Y, Z to Unsweetened? I don't know if it's appropriate. And my my view as coordinator is really just that if it's something that you've been inspired to write, then that's something we want to read. Um, uh, we're not here to dictate what's submitted. We're just here to collate it into um, hopefully a, a representative volume of what people are writing in 2021, which has been a weird year. And I think, I think looking back on, on, on Unsweetened 2021 in a few years time, I think it, it might be a weird experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we've gotten any actual pandemic fiction yet. I don't think so. Yeah, um, I'm scared of it, which is yeah. like funny when you look back at literary history. I mean, all the great works were written about big things that happened, you know, the wars and all that. But like now that we're living in a little global super event. Everyone's like, ooh, don't want to write about that. But we would love to hear um, people's experiences, you know, because the world has changed so much over the past 18 months. Um, and we'd just love to see what you guys are thinking about that. You know, this is kind of like your grounds now. Yeah, absolutely. However, on the, on the note of pandemic fiction, there has been a lot of it outside of Unsweetened and something disturbing and I'm sure wonderful for a great many people I have just heard about is Pandemic Erotica is now a whole genre on, on Amazon books. Um, and I am slightly too squeamish to explore more than that. Um, but there are some, yeah, there's, there's a great deal of, of, of pandemic erotica. Right. Um, I'm sure there's some psychologists out there having an absolute field day over, um, over the, the meaning of that and the, the push for that. But, uh, you know, writing's all about pushing the boundaries. Yeah. We cannot promise we will publish uh, your <laughs> pandemic erotica, but we'll be very interested to read it. So please do submit. Don't don't feel shy or like your writing isn't up to scratch. Um, we're here to amplify your voice. We're here to support you in the writing process. Uh, so please do get involved and you can stay up to date on everything we're doing in our Facebook group and newsletter as per usual. Um, or of course, 
joining us in the podcast, where we are far more likely to go on tangents about erotica than <laughs> in the Facebook group, but you never know. Open to anything. <laughs> that might be my next tip tomorrow. How to ride through the pandemic erotica. Yeah, Good absolutely. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> Just set aside the evening. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. So that's pretty much all we can say about the publication at this point. Everything else is getting into spoiler category. But um, one thing that I can safely spoil is that we have very nearly finalized our design for the cover. And it is absolutely beautiful. I am so excited to see the actual hard copy of the publication come together. Uh, our theme this year is mythos. And I think that the Illustrators and designers have done an extraordinary job of capturing a sense of magic in all of the work that they're doing. So please keep an eye on all of ARC's social media for some sneak previews into that. So we have a very special uh, guest for our interview this episode. Um, our, our guest is uh, Vice Chancellor and President of UNSW, Ian Jacobs. Um, I spoke with him late last week. And uh, I reached out to Professor Jacobs at the beginning of the year, not thinking that he would would have time to speak with us. He's an immensely busy man, of course, but um, he's actually coming to the end of his time at UNSW. He began in 2015 and will be leaving at the end of this year. So uh, we had a really wonderful talk about his time at UNSW and his experience as someone from England coming to Australia and experiencing Australian literature and Australian storytelling. It was such a pleasure to speak with Professor Jacobs and um, has led to a really interesting experience of reflection for me in terms of choosing UNSW as, as a uni. As president, I think he knows UNSW pretty much of inside out. And the reasons that he chose UNSW, I'll let him speak to. But I was just wondering, Mia, why did you choose UNSW? Well, for me, UNSW was one of the few places I could study what I wanted to. So I, I do a double degree. I do economics combined with English and creative writing. Um, and there's plenty of unis out there that don't even offer English, like UTS, Um Sydney Uni changed a lot of their double degrees and I didn't. So I think like UNSW just gave me like the degrees I wanted to do. And I wasn't entirely certain when I got here what the English and creative writing faculties would be like. But I mean, since being here, honestly, like it's like our faculty is incredible. Um, the support I've gotten is incredible. The creative writing classes we've got here and the like creative writing kind of are. Uh, seminar type um way that the uh, tutorials are run was so um pivotal for me to like actually commit to writing um I think there's this sort of this attitude that like or at least in the circles I was in um that Sydney Uni has such a great English department and all that but like and I was slightly concerned coming to UNSW but honestly like that was completely misplaced because all the staff here um in the faculty are so supportive and so passionate um, and all the tutors are incredible as well. So for me, like the variety of subjects we've got here and the, you know, we've got things like unsweetened. I'm so happy to be here, um, doing the degree that I'm doing. We've got so many choices in our arts degrees as well. Um, and you know, UNSW Business School has always been regarded very highly. So I'm happy to be there too. So yeah, for me, it was as very much like the support I've been given, especially in creative writing, I've found has just been like super monumental to just get me to like 
actually stick to writing because sometimes it's really hard to do on your own. Um, but the support I've been receiving from the community as well has just been fantastic. So I'm like, yeah, really, really liking the community here. And this is your second year at UNSW, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. I, um, I'd love to say that I put a huge amount of thought into choosing UNSW, but I absolutely didn't. <laughs> um, I started with the, grand plan of doing a year of an arts degree and then doing wonderfully well and transferring over to law and I did my year in an arts degree and just fell so utterly in love with the creative writing in English program that I just couldn't leave so four years on five years on I yeah I picked UNSW for the law school and have very much stayed for the English and creative writing discipline um and I realize this is sounding like an advert for UNSW creative writing, but it, um, this is not a sponsored podcast. Uh, <laughs> but it is, I, I suspect a very unique community of writers. Um, I've been, uh, reading a book researching for my thesis, um, called Creative Writing in the New Humanities, which is by one of, uh, one of UNSW staff, Paul Dawson. And it's about how creative writing developed as a discipline within universities. And it's sort of something I'd never thought about before. Uh, but creative writing didn't just sort of spring up as a practice um, out of nowhere, where we were just suddenly all doing workshops. And that that was how things went. It very much went through a process of evolution from various different uh, educational reforms in England and um, poetry in World War One. Like, so many things have contributed to how creative writing is now taught so yeah creative writing in english at unsw 10 out of 10 would recommend take an elective even if you're not in the um arts faculty or you're not in the uh, the majors just come do a uh, life of words it's an incredibly fun subject and you get to write your own piece i just think like and i love seeing in art subjects people that are just taking it as electives because they want um a bit of variety from their engineering degree or their psychology degree or what it may be um, that they just want, you know, because they've always loved literature and stuff like that. So I think it's a really welcoming space. I really appreciate that. All the courses kind of, they don't assume that everyone doing the course is a, is a major. Um, and they always have like, you know, accommodations for like people who don't know how to reference in the humanities yet and stuff like that. So I think it's a really inviting place as well. I don't think there's any elitism or anything about it. So definitely, even if you're not an art student, think about taking an English elective. It's a lot of fun. You get to read and talk about books. And if you're a law student, you might end up uh, writing your verdicts in verse. Yes, exactly. See where it can take you. <laughs> yeah, prepare yourself. Cool. I will hand over to me from four days ago. I hope I have grown since then. Um, and my interview with Professor Ian Jacobs. Professor Ian Jacobs is a gynecological oncologist by training. Most of his research has been into ovarian cancer, which is notoriously hard to diagnose, hard to treat, and the mortality rate is very high compared to many other cancers. He has worked a great deal in the field of charity of cancer screening in developing nations, and before UNSW, he was vice president at the University of Manchester. Professor Ian Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us on the Unsweetened podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to join you and, and be part of this great venture. Thank you so much. 
So Edon Sweeten, we're interested in questioning how literature influences identity for individuals, communities, and nations. So has there been any particularly influential literature in your life? Yes, a lot of influential literature. I, I think that the, the big moment for me in understanding the power of writing of books and of literature was when I joined my secondary school, age 11 years, and I, I spent a lot of time in the, the bookshop there, the library there, and became fascinated by the, the mass of written material. I, I had naively at that stage in my life a thought that perhaps during your lifetime it would be possible to read everything that had been written. Ha ha. And um, I, what I, I'm much better now at doing is, is buying books than, and having them on my bookshelves than actually reading all of them. But I, I have read a lot. And I, I think if I, my starting point, the first really perhaps the biggest influence on me, and I do think this is literature, even though it's a science book, is The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin, which is a beautifully written piece of literature, as well as being perhaps the most influential piece of scientific writing. Absolutely. And Charles Darwin is such an interesting figure. His um his grandfather, whose name was Erasmus, I believe, was a, a great poet, as well as a great scientist. And... um Charles Darwin certainly kept that legacy going in his writing. Yes, I, I think it is It is a beautiful piece of work as well as, of course, the enormous scientific insights. And it, it influenced me enormously. I think I first read it when I was at secondary school. And the the power of the theory of evolution had a big influence on my attitude to life generally to my on my enthusiasm for pursuing science and then medicine and health, but also on my attitude to um, religion. I came from a, a background in North London, a traditional Jewish background, not particularly religious in the sense of belief, but um, religious in the sense of tradition. And reading that book and thinking it through, and then that led me to many other things, I think was a key factor in the fact that in the end, having thought very carefully, I, I rejected religious belief and I would describe myself now as a, an atheist and, I, I, and, and a humanist. And I, I think that that book had a major influence on, on, on my personal thinking. Yes, of course. There, there are very few texts, I think, with, with such a substantial impact on, on modern life. There are a couple of other pieces of, of literature that I thought I'd perhaps mention that have that influenced me or, or that have excited me. And, and one book um, is The English Patient, Michael on Darcy, and I, I think it was published in the early 90s, 1990s. And I, I thought that that was a beautifully written story of, of love, of passion, of suffering, prejudice, and, and it involved war and ultimately hope. And I, I felt when I read it that it was rare to read a novel which flowed so much like poetry. Mm. And, and that is also a book ultimately about humanism, about overcoming differences of appearance and background to really get to what is the essence of humanity. So having 
perhaps because of origin of species and, and reading other things rejected religion in my teens, it, it took me a while to realise that I was a humanist. And that, that book, along with many non-fiction books, helped me on the way. And I, the, the, um, but I, that's all pretty serious stuff. But I, there is one other book that captivated me and, and is really fun. And that is a book called Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby, also written in the 90s. And if we've got time, I could say a little bit about that. Oh, please do. Well, that book was published when I was in my 30s. And it turned out that Nick Hornby, who is now a very successful novelist, almost exactly my age. And the book tells the story of his life in North London, which is where I grew up through his love affair with, wait for it, Arsenal Football Club. And like Hornby, I've been a passionate Arsenal supporter from about the age of six years old, when my dad first took me to a match, and Hornby's dad took him to matches. And like me, Hornby had a... He, I don't think he came from a very privileged background, but he had a privileged education and went to Cambridge exactly at the same time as me. I didn't know him, but he was there at the same time as me. So... I could identify with much in the book, though unlike me, his home background and his relationship with his parents wasn't happy. And in the book, he relates each chapter of the book to an episode in his life as a child through to his 30s, including his interaction with his parents, romances, and the action and events at, at an Arsenal football match. And it includes the ups and downs of Arsenal, finishing after years of failure with the ecstasy that some of your listeners may know about, but only the sad ones, of Arsenal <laughs> winning the, uh, the league in 1989. And I found a review of, of um, Fever Pitch from 2013, which I sums it up. It said it's about uncomplicated love, about the instinctive choice of the team, about a relationship just like our other relationships, albeit one where you risk your heart, soul, sanity and peace of mind weekly all the while knowing that it's a lifelong commitment we can never break or move on from, and one that will always regulate our moods. So I, I thought that was um, I thought that was a great book, and and I, I it, it really sums up for me the way that I love sport generally and football and Arsenal precisely because it's possible to feel so passionate, excited and happy about something which we all know is truly of no importance whatsoever. And it does, I think perhaps it brings together the, the sentiments in um, the English patient and in, in some way origin of the species because it makes me feel that if only people could vent their frustration and anger in, in the way that it is in, in fever pitch instead of through real world conflict, we'd be in a better place. And I'll always seek the meaningless release and ecstasy in sporting events that Hornby described so well. And it's all captured in the moment of Michael Thomas's great goal, which secured the league for Arsenal in 1989 at Liverpool. And just one more thing I'll add, appropriately at Liverpool, because Bill Shankly, a great Liverpool manager, said tongue-in-cheek in 1984, some people think football is a matter of life and death. I assure you, it's much more serious than that. How lovely. Is it um, safe to assume that you've stayed up to date with Arsenal games while in Australia? I have, and one of the great things about being away for seven years has been that Arsenal have done terribly, so I've been 
somewhat arm's arm's length from it. But I but I am fascinated by the contrast between the largely harmless passion that some people can feel for the sporting club they support and the passion you see so often negative and destructive that some just some feel related to religion or national identity. And I, I feel that that does come through in Fever Pitch, in um, The English Patient and in so much other literature. I'd love to see a world with more of the former and less of the latter. I must admit, I'm not a very sporting person. I've been buried in books um, for, for most of my life. But there is something um, so cathartic and, and community-minded in, in any sports game, I, I feel. It's, it's um, a rare experience for me, but a beautiful one nonetheless. So you, you grew up in North London um, and coming from England to Australia. What has your experience of Australian literature or Australian storytelling been like? Um, yes, well, I have to confess that whilst I was in the UK for most of my life and as a child, my image of Australia and of indigenous people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands was a a very romanticized and inaccurate um, impression and it's been really illuminating from the moment I arrived in Australia getting a much stronger sense of the reality and one of the pieces of literature that helped me on that journey was Secret River. The the book Secret River there is also um, a television or, or film version and and a play and I've I've read the book and seen them all and that that book I thought um, about early settlers in Australia about the way in which indigenous people were really treated opened my eyes and and I suspect that in the UK the the impression that people have of the indigenous Australian experience is still a romanticized and glamorized one rather than the rather than the truth so that was um, really important for me and of course a more recent piece of writing that is incredibly important in that context is the Uluru statement from the heart and I'm really proud that UNSW through Professor Megan Davis and colleagues at UNSW working with others across Australia have made such a big contribution to that important document and and most recently that it won the um, Sydney Peace Prize. So so a lot of I've, I've done a lot of reading about the indigenous experience and, and I've learnt a lot since I arrived in Australia and when I return back to the UK I will do my very best to correct what I think is an omission in the way that is understood and, and taught in the UK. But there are lots of other pieces of Australian literature that um, have influenced and, and excited me. I Thomas Anelis Schindler's List is a, a powerful piece of, of literature and writing which had a, a, a big influence on me. Yes, of course. It's um I feel hard not to be impacted by Schindler's List uh, as a work. It's it's quite extraordinary. As a as a um as someone, albeit not religious, but from a, a Jewish background, my parents grew up in the UK, joined the joined the Holocaust, I mean, the shadow of the Holocaust. So that's an inspirational 
book about the very best of human nature, but also lessons about the very worst. Yes, the the, ju- the juxtaposition of human good and evil is, um, I think, best put in, in, in literature. Everything can be made so cohesive, um, the good and the bad put side by side. So in terms of uh, your impression of Australia before you came here, you studied at Cambridge and the University College of London, is that right? Yes, um I, I studied medicine and law at Cambridge and then went on to complete my medical training at what was the Middlesex Hospital in London and it became part of University College London. What a, um, uh, impressive mix, law and medicine, um, in, in one degree at, at Cambridge, no less. Like UNSW, at UNSW there are dual degrees, which I think is a wonderful thing and a great opportunity and at Cambridge, there was a tripos, and you you could change the topics you studied. You, in order to train in medicine, you had to study two years of medical sciences. But in the third year, I had the opportunity to do something else and studied a year of law, which was a fascinating year. But I I decided that I wanted to continue with clinical medicine, and and went on to London to complete that training. Yes, but it was a great opportunity, and I I do think the dual the dual degree opportunity at UNSW is is something precious that um, should should definitely continue. Mm. It makes for such a richer educational experience, but I suspect also um, more multifaceted professionals coming coming out into the workforce, having knowledge of different disciplines. Yeah, it's a broad, a broad you know, education is an incredibly powerful thing, and in, in so far as is possible, the broader the education, the better from 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 my view and. UNSW, of course, provides just about every academic discipline for, for education and research that there is, and we're very proud of that. Yes. When uh, you first came to UNSW, which, uh, com- compared to Cambridge in particular, is still a, a very young university, what was your view of the story of UNSW? Well, I, I can confess now that I'm in my seventh year that when I was approached about the role of President and Vice-Chancellor at UNSW, I had not heard of the university, which now seems extraordinary to me. And the recruitment agent said to me, oh, come on here, this is a top 100 university. You need to take a look at this. And um, I did. And, and the more I found out about it, the more impressed I was. In fact, when I looked at the list of what I thought were the top 100 universities, there were only two that I didn't know. And, and that made me think, wow, this is an extraordinary opportunity to go and lead a university like this and raise its um, profile outside Australia because I discovered that UNSW was a a major um, force and and of course incredibly well known in Australia uh, and um, as I as I researched it a university at that point that was less than 70 years old but actually had its roots going back to a the 1880s, when it was founded, when there was a, a design school for mechanics established in Sydney to create opportunities in education for people that didn't have them in any other way. And from that, it then became a technology institute and um, and then just over 70 years ago became a university after the Second World War. And so, so one of the most impressive things to me was the vision and the determination of the people who created and founded UNSW 
to create educational opportunities and research opportunities for people that would not otherwise have had them. And I, I do think that that still runs through the rich history of this great university. Equity has been quite essential to your time as um, president of UNSW, I believe, isn't it? You um, spearheaded it. You spearheaded the UNSW 2025 plan and equity is one of the core tenets of that. Um, so you've continued with that legacy. Yeah, absolutely. So you, what, what is, what is a great university about? Great university is about creating opportunities for people. Um, and, and that can be opportunities for students through outstanding education opportunities for academics to do to to teach and to do great research which changes the world in so many ways uh, but it's also to influence society to exchange information to be a, a forum for debate and discussion and through all of that a key theme of strategy 2025 is equity diversity and inclusion and we've made that a major part of our platform whilst whilst also resolutely and, and in a determined way striving for excellence in education and for research innovation that will change people's lives in Australia and across the globe, but always with our values and our ethos of equity, diversity and inclusion at the forefront. And there are so many examples of, of achievements in that that people at UNSW have led over the last um, seven years, but, but also throughout its history that we can be be really proud of. And some of those are about student equity, making sure that um, insofar as is possible, UNSW, access to UNSW is available to people from all backgrounds, and that once they're here, they are supported to achieve. But also uh, equity for staff um, at all grades in the university, and striving for equity in, in our broader community. And I think there are, there are really important achievements um, that UNSW has contributed in all of those areas. Yes. The news broke um, yesterday or the, the day before, I believe, that one of the art installations for Pride Month has been um, damaged on, on campus. And it's uh, quite heartbreaking as a, as a member of the LGBT plus community. But it's... Um, I, I think it is quite remarkable that there's such a strong focus on LGBT pride within the university. It was certainly um, part of the appeal of the uni for me, uh, the the fact that there was such openness to LGBT students. Oh, absolutely, and that is a, a, a key part of life at UNSW. We, we welcome people from all backgrounds, all, all a whole raft of different views, people who want to live their lives in all sorts of different ways. Um, we will not tolerate prejudice or discrimination of any kind. And we have a, a welcoming, supportive community for people of all different choices, backgrounds um, and beliefs. And, and that is an absolute tenet of this university. There is zero tolerance to any form of discrimination or prejudice. And I think that we, we, we say that, but we also live that. And the, the, we were one of the first universities to have a division of equity, diversity and inclusion. Eileen Baldry 
has been a wonderful example as uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. I, I think her appointment was um, the, the, the first in Australia at that level and she's shown great leadership but so many others in the university community, students and staff have also advanced our efforts. And it's it's not something that is a start finished task. It's something that needs to be lived and breathed every day as we go forward. And there's there's so much more to do. And you've just alluded to a situation perhaps where where the community hasn't quite lived up to to what we aspire to. Yes, it is um so challenging when events like this happen. But the the strength of the response from students and staff against bigoted views has has been quite moving. I I feel. Um, just the, the automatic, as you say, zero tolerance, uh, for, for bigotry within the community has been very touching. So. Well, I, I'm glad that, 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 that's reassured you and I hope that, um, it's reassured the broader community and uh, certainly the LBG, LGBTQI community have my absolute, um, support and um, I, I desperately hope that they feel that that's the case across the university. Um, and, and it's the same for, for other groups in the university. There is an absolute commitment on the part of UNSW, which I do believe goes, goes through the history of the university. Yeah. And actually perhaps worth just um, reflecting on, on the motto of the university, um, the the um, the the original motto was scientia manu et mente, knowledge by hand and mind, and and um, that goes back, of course, seventy years. I think, though, that in addition to hand and mind, which means that the university thinks about things but also acts. I think there was something deeper underpinning that that people didn't express so well, and that was heart. And we changed the motto last year to Scientia Cordis et Mente, knowledge by hand, heart and mind. And I, I think that expresses something that has always been in the tradition and values of UNSW, but is now much more overtly expressed and, and our equity, diversity and inclusion efforts are one way of demonstrating that. Yes, absolutely. I uh, remember as an, a very young teenager first being exposed to NSW and the first thing I saw was, of course, the logo of the lion. Um, and yes, as an early high schooler, uh, I thought the lion was the symbol of bravery, um, the, the symbol of, of action and Choosing UNSW in the end was on slightly stronger grounds than just the logo, but um, certainly along the same lines of values, uh, action with knowledge and with heart. Well, that's, that's fascinating that that um, that influenced you quite recently because when I when I speak to many alumni who who joined the university uh, 30, 40, or 50, or even more years ago. They tell a similar story that they, they saw UNSW, they had a choice, many of them, um, of, of other, of University of Sydney or other universities and they chose UNSW because it was different, it was innovative, it was forward looking and problem solving. Um, 
so so that's there is a very strong theme there and of course so many of those um, alumni from the university have gone on to great things and at 70 years of age the university is almost coming of age and one example of that is that uh, whether you agree with their politics or not this university right now um, has as alumni the Governor General of Australia, the Prime Minister of Australia, and the Premier of New South Wales. And I think that says a lot about um, the significance of the university in Australian life. And um, so, so many, they, they represent so many people who've had great opportunities through their times at UNSW. And it's not just politics, of course, it is the business world, it's the arts, it's uh, the professions. It's so many, so many other areas. You can find examples of great Australians who who had a positive impact on on people in this country and people across the globe. Absolutely. It's always such a pleasure to to meet alumni from UNSW. There seems to be, uh, yes, as as you say, a very consistent focus on on leadership and innovation, um, and of course, walking up the Bathurst steps is uh, something that, that that comes up quite often with alumni, I think. The memory of, of the campus and running up and down rapidly to classes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, um, of course, the, the, we do have a, a wonderful campus. I One of the things that persuaded me when I visited Sydney and I was being considered for the role, that this was a role that I really wanted to, to secure and, and, and then spend the next... Uh, period of my life uh, working at UNSW, we were standing on the s- steps outside the Sientia building, looking down the mall and seeing hundreds and hundreds of students and staff on the mall and that vista of the, the great buildings along the mall. I, I really felt that that was a, a vista of what education and top quality, a top quality university has to offer to people in Australia and around the world. I, I still find that an inspiring um, view, just as I as I do when I walk up the, the Bassist Steps. Yeah. So you've had um, a very tumultuous few years of, of leadership at UNSW. You guided us through trimesters and, of course, the UNSW 2025 plan and now COVID. Coming to the end of your time here, do you have an idea as to what comes next in the story of UNSW? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to describe my time as tumultuous. I think it's been, been incredibly exciting and, and, um, I divided it into two bits really. One was the, the first five years of, of working with the UNSW community in partnership with everyone to develop and then implement the 2025 strategy and generating the resources for that and then making sure that we didn't just develop a strategy for great education, research, equity, diversity, social progress, innovation, and all of those other things, but we actually implemented it. And um, if you look at the, the, the measures of the success of implementation, uh, it is quite extraordinary how much has been achieved by the broad UNSW community. I, I was, in, in large part, recruited to raise the ambition and aspirations of the university at a time when it was in very good shape 
and, and to create a, a forward-looking university which tried to achieve even more for New South Wales, Australia and across the globe. And I think we've achieved that. I'm, um, I know all the flaws in university rankings, but they are one surrogate way of measuring our overall impact across the globe. And the NSW is rising in its reputation and profile globally. We are now um, at around the top 50 or in the top 50 in the world. And when you look at those top 50 universities, it's not just a question of flag waving, saying how great we are. The, the real question is, how much do they contribute to people's lives across the world? And university, if you look at the top universities, they really do make a difference. And UNSW is certainly one of them. So the first five years were really exciting in taking UNSW on its next steps in that direction. And then, of course, along came the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, an, an enormous challenge for everyone. I think we could be proud of the way that the UNSW community has responded to that, has addressed the challenges it, it posed up front, not hidden away from them, and made sure that we stay true to our values through that. So I think we can be proud of that. And um, all of that relates to the, the question you asked about where is the university heading? I think we come, we are coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, albeit that whilst we speak, there is a surge of cases in New South Wales, but we are coming out of the pandemic and UNSW is in a very strong place for the future. Uh, I think it will con continue to be one of the leading universities in Australia, providing top quality education to, to people from New South Wales and across Australia, doing outstanding work, research, which really does change people's lives across the broad um, spectrum of, of research, whether it's in health, in engineering, in science, in arts, design, architecture, law, business. The NSW is a comprehensive university and continues to do outstanding work, which really does influence people across the world, and most importantly, improves the quality of people's lives across the globe. Uh, I think we're on a great trajectory to continue doing that, and I expect that to continue under the auspices of my successor, who I, I expect to be announced in the next uh, couple of weeks, and, and, and well beyond that for the next, for on, in ongoing years. Wonderful. I'm... Um... So excited to, to see where UNSW goes next. I think one of the strong themes of UNSW throughout its history, which I have tried to accentuate and facilitate, is, is the spirit of generosity and partnership. The sense that all of us at UNSW, whether we are students or staff, are incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to, to work and study and do research in a university like this. And that comes with an enormous responsibility. And that's a responsibility to give back through a sense of generosity and partnership for our local community, for Australia and, and for the global community. And I see that in action every day. It's been a key part of the philosophy of the university um, since, since its 1883 roots in the design school for mechanics, but certainly in the last seven years. And it's exemplified, perhaps, in some of the opportunities that the university has been going forward as we emerge from the pandemic. Whether it's our new Randwick Health and Innovation Precinct, 
which is a massive development of the campus, but is also an opportunity for everyone at UNSW to work with our colleagues in the local health district and New South Wales Health to, to create a health impact that is truly significant and important. All our work in Western Sydney, our, our campus in Parramatta, or the uh, multiversity effort with the universities of Newcastle, Wollongong and Western Sydney to develop new educational offerings in Western Sydney and to develop advanced manufacturing in the Aerotropolis or our new campus in um, that we're planning in Canberra which offers so many opportunities there or our alliance with Arizona State and King's College University, the Plus Alliance which is, is aiming to bring new educational and research opportunities across the globe. All of those things only work because of that real commitment to working in partnership and working in partnership with generosity, knowing that the key thing is to, to give, to make the partnership work, to, to bring benefits to others, knowing that in the end, of course, that'll add to the profile and the opportunities that everyone at UNSW has. And uh, that seems quite a, a beautiful note to end on, but I, I just have one more question, if that's all right. Um, each year, Unsweetened has a theme that organises the uh, publication, um, and this year our theme is Mythos. Um, I've asked about the influential literature in your in your life, but are there any myths or legends or folk tales that have been influential for you? Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, I, I'm going to pick a legend rather than a myth. I, I really enjoyed, as in my childhood, the the legend of Robin Hood. And, and Robin is, is quite interesting in in terms of literature. The the ballads and the stories about Robin Hood, I think, go back to many, many centuries, perhaps to the 13th century. I think it's one of the earliest records of of the legend of Robin Hood. It's it's changed. The story has changed over the years. And of course, when I was um, growing up, and, and and I I watched the television series Robin Hood, Robin Hood riding through the Glen. It was a a, a really exciting story of bravery, of of redistribution of wealth. Um, Robin Hood stealing from the rich, taking from the rich to to give to the disadvantaged. But it also it had um, battles and bravery and a little bit of romance with Maid Marian and the evil sheriff of Nottingham and the loyalty to King Richard and all, all of those things. So uh, it was a really exciting story as a as a child. But uh, there is a, 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 a bigger moral or ethical thing running through it, of course, and that is about redistribution. It does, of course, raise the question, is it, is it ever ethical to, to take and steal from the rich to give to others? And, and um, beyond that, the concept of, of working really hard, as UNSW does, uh, which is so important to me personally, to, to try and use the opportunities that those of us who've had the privilege of a great education and all the advantages that that brings in life, to use that opportunity to make a difference to others, and particularly to those in Australia and and across the globe who are disadvantaged, um, to bring those opportunities to them, and and through that to to improve lives. 
And, and I, I think, going back to the question you asked about the future of UNSW, that is what UNSW was created to do. Most people, most of the UNSW community, whether students, staff or alumni, really feel that passionately, that that is what our university is about. It's not about doing things to improve our lives. It is about doing things which enrich people broadly in Australia and around the world. And if we live through that, of course, it will ultimately also enrich our own lives. Yes, a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Professor Jacobs. And um, thank you for all of your, your time and extraordinary work at UNSW. Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to contribute to Unsweetened. A great privilege. Thank you so much. So we have one final segment for today. We will be concluding with a retelling of Professor Jacobs' favourite myth, Robin Hood. But before then, just an update on all that we're doing. As said, submissions are closing next week, so please do submit your work. Um, and if you have any questions, queries, concerns, please do send them to me at unsweetened at arc.unsw.edu.au. Or if that uh, typing all of that email out seems daunting, you can just find us on Facebook um, at Unsweetened Literary Journal 2021. Um, in terms of other events, the scavenger hunt for our Mythos cards has been paused uh, with lockdown. Um, it is very sad, and we are still figuring out exactly how we're going to go ahead with it, so please do keep an eye on our social media. But we are going ahead with the cards. There is still a whole deck to assemble. Um, there is some absolutely stunning artwork coming up, so please do stay excited. And hopefully in a few weeks we'll be able to go back to hiding cards in very annoying, hard-to-reach places for you. Cool. So thank you so much for joining us listening today. And thank you, Mia, for your company. It's been great chatting. And I will now hand over to editor Belle Campbell, uh, retelling the myth of Robin Hood's Golden Prize. This is the story of Robin Hood's Golden Prize. It is adapted from Francis James Child's Ballad 147A. It was a green summer day in Sherwood Forest, and Robin Hood and his band of merry men were arguing once again. John and Marion were trying, unsuccessfully, to convince Robin to disguise himself as a friar. By this point in their adventures, there was certainly no love lost between Robin and the clergy. Robin was feeling rather affronted by the suggestion of wearing the cassock of one of their old adversaries, and although he blamed the scratchy fabric, it was more that he had become quite enamoured with the terror that the sight of his feathered green cap might strike in the hearts of passing gentlemen. But Marion reminded him that it was this growing popularity that would render this particular endeavour useless if they did not disguise himself. And so, with much grumbling and mumbling, he donned the grey robes and crucifix and set off into the forest. It wasn't long before he came across the winding road that intersected Sherwood, and he waited behind a sturdy-looking oak until he heard the tell-tale sound of hooves approaching. Soon, a pair of haughty-looking priests came into view, riding atop healthy chestnut mares. Their noses were stuck so high in the air, they almost scratched the overhanging boughs, and they glared most distastefully when they spotted Robin. Adopting a particularly pathetic expression, Robin threw himself into their path, causing the horses to rear up, although not quite as dangerously as Robin was hoping. Please help me, he cried. 
I'm but a poor friar. I've been walking for days without food or water. The priests looked at each other before answering that they too had no money, having been robbed just that morning. Now Robin knew immediately that this was a lie. No thieving went on in Sherwood without his knowledge. He accused them of lying and the priests began to flee. However, Robin was quick and he soon overtook them. He wrestled them down from their mounts, who snorted and squealed in panic. They begged Robin to spare them and promised to pray on their knees for his good fortune. And so they both sat upon their knees and prayed ferociously, wringing their hands and crying aloud while Robin looked on in amusement. After an hour of praying, Robin finally said, Now, now, let's see what money heaven has sent us. The priests put their hands in their pockets, but found no money. So Robin searched them most thoroughly and found, hidden away, almost 500 gold pieces between them. Well, well, here is a brave show, he cried. What a stash. Here, take 50 pieces each, since you prayed so hard, but the rest will be coming with me, I'm afraid. What a miracle indeed. The priest stared glumly at the ground and moved to get up, but Robin stopped them. One more thing before you go. You shall both swear here, upon this holy grass, that you will never tell lies again, and that you shall never tempt maids to sin, nor lie with other men's wives. And most importantly, you shall swear to be charitable to the poor, and you will always remember the day you met a holy friar in the woods, and you will desire no more. He set them on their horses again, and away they rode into the thick forest, and Robin Hood returned to his merry greenwood with much joy, mirth, and pride. Submissions to Unsweetened Mythos are now open. Submit your short stories, poetry, essays, and experimental work by the 5th of July.